In the Christmas season, we began to look at the book of John. John, uh, for, for those of you that are unfamiliar with the Bible, there are four men that tell and record it for us, the, the, the story of Jesus. And uh, some of these men walked with Christ. Uh, other ones that, like Luke, uh, received the story from others and recorded it for us. And we began to look at John's story because John has a unique position with Jesus. Uh, when you read the New Testament, you, you figure out that John had most likely the closest relationship, the closest heart relationship, we would say best friend of Jesus. So he brings to, this, to the table this very interesting perspective, what I consider kind of an eternal perspective of Jesus, but an internal perspective of Jesus. In other words, when you're someone's best friend, you cannot just talk about what they look like, their favorite flavor of ice cream, all the things that everybody else can notice. But you also are able to reveal what's important to their interior. What are the things that they have talked about in private? What are the things that have, have, has created a tear in their eye? What are the things that have frustrated them? When I, th I think of the, the men that are close to me, I can tell you those things and tell you things that you may not see if you just have a, a casual relationship. So there's great value in going to John to get the inside of Christ and what was important to him. When you look at the, the, the opening of the story, we decided to take the first 18 verses, the eight, first 18 sentences, to, to use non-biblical language, the first 18 uh, phrases, sentences of the, the story of John, and look at uh, the concept of who. And so we spent in the Christmas season looking at the first five verses. We took one week per verse and looked at the profound description that John gave to us of who, of who Jesus was. And you could literally spend the rest of your life in the first five uh, sentences of the book of John because it is so deep and so profound that it, it, we're speaking about Christ and eternity past. We're speaking about Christ uh, uh, that, uh, who is equal with God the Father. We're speaking about Christ who was the light of the world and this light was the Zoe, as you might remember, the that inner life that goes beyond the psyche and the bios of our, our life, this inner rich life that, that Christ gives. Now we're going to turn our attention, beginning in verse 6 through 18, we're going to begin to turn our attention on who we are. In other words, who Christ sees us at, again, from an eternal, internal point of view. In other words, it's like leaning into Jesus and saying, who is it that you expect us to be? Who is it that you want us to be? Who is it that you see us to be? And so with that in mind, we begin then in verse 6, and because these are grouped together, we're going to read three verses today, John chapter 1 and verse 6 through 8. If you have your Bible, you want to turn with me there, or you'll see it up on the screen as well. Now, let me clarify before we begin. That uh, could be confusing, again, if you don't know the Bible. This is the story that we're about to read is written by John. John was one of the apostles. Now, you're going to see in the first sentence the word John. He's not speaking of himself. He's speaking of John the Baptist. And in verse 6 in chapter 1, there came a man who was sent from God. 
His name was John, John the Baptist, as we know. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. Now, what we see from the very beginning is something that is not only profound, but profoundly true and consistent from the very beginning of the Bible. So when you look at the beginning of the verse, there was a man who was sent from God. And when you look at that phrase, let's say you don't know anything about God, because sometimes for those of us that are Christ followers, even if you've been, I've been a Christ follower for 35 years. When you look at the scope of eternity, that's just like a little teeny drop in a very large lake. We think, wow, 35 years, or some of you may follow Christ for 50 years, but in the light of eternity, we just know a little, would you agree? And so when we look at this, we say, uh, let's figure out who God is and who we are. There's sometimes, I, I like to act like I don't know anything. And I'm coming at it at a completely clean slate. So when you look at this, phrase that there was a man who was sent by God, and you look at the scope of Scripture, what you realize is that in this phrase that we find that something very, very important and true, that God has chosen not to do everything himself. Now think about it. It's hard to unknow what you know. But let's say you're just introducing yourself to God for the first time. Let's say you're exploring other religions and other faiths, because in other religions and other faiths, uh, there, are, there are deities that are distant. We talk about having a personal relationship with Christ. This is foreign to many religions around the world. Usually, uh, or typically, that God is somewhat distant this divine being that we can't touch, that we can't uh, have tangibility to. It was John himself who wrote later in one of his letters, he begins his letter, that Christ which we touched, that we heard, that we saw. This is God. And so when you come to the God of the scriptures, what you figure out is that he is not a divine being who says, I'll do it all. From the station of heaven... I will manipulate and puppeteer the world. But from the beginning, he engages people. This is stunning. Now, if you're used to it, like, yeah, I kind of knew that. But I'm trying to get us to look at God from a perspective of someone who doesn't know God because it's important for us to be able to say, let me tell you about my God. You see, my God is not a, a divine deity that is distant, my God is not some, something that I have no idea how he feels, what makes him happy, what makes him sad, what makes him angry. Our God just does it all, and we're basically these robotic beings with no control, no skin in the game, no investment in what's going on around the world. That's not the God of the scriptures. There was a man sent from God. And when you look and consider throughout the scriptures, even beginning in the book of Genesis, we look at Genesis chapter 12 at the calling of Abram. The Lord said to Abram, leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to the land I would show you. This is a land that God could have gone to himself. 
but he picks a man in a foreign country who really doesn't even have a relationship with us and says, I'm sending you, just like he sent John the Baptist. I'm sending you. Later on in the book of Exodus, God comes to Moses. You remember the story of the burning bush and God is there and he says, hey, you're standing on holy ground. Moses doesn't even have a relationship with God yet. And he says in Exodus chapter three, verse 10, God says to Moses, so now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people uh, the Israelites out of Egypt. It goes right down the line. And uh, Moses' protege, Joshua, God comes to him and says, I want you to go cross over the River Jordan. I want to make sure that you are going. Elijah, I want you to go up in the presence of King Ahab. When you look at Isaiah, God poses a question, whom shall I send? Who will go. When you look at the uh, prophet Ezekiel, God says, I want you to go to my people in exile. When you look at Jonah, he says, I want you to go to the great city of Nineveh. In other words, God is a sender. Here is a man, John the Baptist, here is a man sent from God. It not only tells us something about us that we get to have skin in the game, it again tells us about who God is. So it should be no surprise then that when we come to Christ, And in his final words to us, in his final challenge to us, he says, go. Mark chapter 16, the very last things that Jesus says in that story, according to Mark, in verse 15, he says, go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. For those of you that may not know, the good news is this, that we are all infected by the sin of Adam, you may say that's a, that's a, that is a profound bit of information. I'm not sure I can wrap my head around that. Neither can, I, n- neither can us neither, too. <laughs> but there's clear set-aside theology. How do I know I'm infected and contaminated by sinfulness? Because... All, has to, all you have to do is look in two places every morning, the headline news and the mirror. You look in the mirror and we know our own faults. We know our own inadequacies. We know our own brokenness. We know our own selfishness. We know our own moodiness. We know our own greediness. We know all that stuff. And if that's not enough, we look in the news and we see people that we think are worse than us and then it makes us feel better. And then we have a cup of coffee and we get on with our day. We are contaminated by this, and not only that, the news gets worse. It's like a drowning man in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. There is no way that any of us can rescue ourselves. And so when we sing this song that he came to our rescue, it seems simple to sing, but it's profound to understand that the human grace was in a predicament where we could not pull ourselves up. And if we take it from this collective conceptual level of the human race, let's take it right down to you. You were not able to help yourself. You were not able to find yourself in favor with God on your own. The church couldn't help. Your parents couldn't help. No pastor could help. No priest, no matter what is claimed, could help. There's no one that can help. You see, Christ came and says, what you cannot do, I will do for you. I will take the penalty of your sin. I'll pour it onto my shoulders profoundly and mysteriously and absorb the penalty of your sin. 
And I will lay myself down on a cross and absorb the sin of the world. And when we come to Christ, we don't come with what we have. We come with what we come to receive what Christ has already done. And we come and say, God, I am broken. I'm a sinner and I am a helpless sinner. I cannot do good enough to win favor in the eyes of a perfect God. And so, God, I come to you. I, I, I give my allegiance, my faith, and put my dependence in Christ who did what I could not do. And in that moment of transfer, Christ comes to us and he ignites a new life. And the only way that he can ignite that new life was because that Christ is not laying in a grave, that Christ came back from the dead and it's not just a religious component of Christianity that we talk about on Easter. It's the reality that the living God who breathed existence into this universe, the living, that same living God, because he had the power to raise Christ from the dead, can breathe new life into your spirit, and there is no counselor, no college teacher, no self-help book, no pastor, no church that can breathe life into your dead soul and give you Zoe. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. You will not get it anywhere else except Jesus. That's why God is not narrow-minded when he says there is only one way to the Father. He's not trying to be a bigot or arrogant or narrow-minded, there is only one who has come back from the grave that can breathe life into you. And this is why Jesus would say, look, don't look at in other places because all roads will not lead to God, but all roads need to come through Christ. So when we read these words, go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation, this is what we're referring to. Before I go on, I feel like the need to pause and say, maybe that's you. Maybe that's you. Perhaps you've, you're exploring God. I, when, I was, when I was searching for God, I didn't even know what I was searching for, to be honest with you. So you may have not crystallized it or defined it in your mind yet. Yes, this is exactly what I'm looking for, but your soul is telling you that whatever life has delivered to your doorstep that it's not enough. I knew that much. And I came to Christ and said, God, Christ, I, I'm at the end of myself. And I called, and he answered. In the end of Matthew's story, he says the same thing. God is a sender. In Matthew chapter 8 and verse 19, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded. So can we take this prologue and agree with one another that God is a sender? God sent John the Baptist and he sent Abraham and he sent Moses and he sent Jonah and he sent Elijah and he sent Ezekiel and he sent Isaiah and a slew of other people that we don't have time to look at this morning. It's profound that God is a sender, that he doesn't do it all himself. In the ultimate moment of history at our greatest need, God then became the ultimate sender. In 1 John, same writer, in chapter 4, verse 9, 
everything can rest on this one pillar. We would say uh, it, it bears the weight of everything that we're speaking about in 1 John chapter 4, verse 9. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent. He sent. In other words, the very core of God's love, the very core of God's urgency for us, the very, the very core of God rescuing us, it, it happened, occurred, because God sent. Look, take a fresh view, like you've never read the Bible before. It could say anything. That they could say, this is how God showed his love among us, that he, he gave us a written word, that he sent us a letter. This is how God loved us. He sent us a letter. Think how different that would be. This is how God loved us. He made everything roses and peaches, or peaches and love, or peaches and cream, cream and roses, something. In other words, he made our life just perfect. This is how God loved us, to make all things butterflies and haiku. That everything's just going to go perfectly. This is how God loved us. Nope. Because none of those things sending a love letter, giving us a written word, making all things you know, going our way, none of those things would have rescued us from the ocean from which we could not rescue ourselves. And so God says this, let me show you, let me show you, not let me tell you, not let you dream about, let, not, not let you hope, as in some religions that when you take your last breath, you hope that something's going to, that you've done enough. But Christ, God says, let me show you. Let me show you. Let me demonstrate to you. This is how God showed his love that he sent. God is a sender. And that's how he's resolved the, the issues of the world and the issue, the greatest issue of the world. He sent his one and his only son into the world that we might live through him. Now, here's the key of the day, all right? So if you want to wipe your lenses of your glasses, get another cup of coffee, tune in. This is, this is the key right here, okay? When we look at how Jesus was sent, we could easily misinterpret it by something that he did, that this was only an action, that he came on earth and said, hey, my father asked me to, to do this, and so I did it. It was not something he did, rather it was something that he was. In other words, it became not a task to be accomplished, it became an identity of who he was. Christ saw himself as sent. It wasn't as if he did something that he could check off a list, but it became who he was. Watch. In John chapter 6 and verse 29, Jesus said, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. In other words, he's, he's beginning to embrace this identity. Who are you, Christ? I'm sent. This is who I am. It's just not what I do. If you're, if you're still wrapping your mind, trying to wrap your mind around it, it's, it, it, it will it begin to unfold here for a second. But let me give you an example. Let me give you an example. 
My mom has told this story to me many times. When my father came out of the army and he got married, he had not transferred his identity yet to husband. He had lived his life, obviously, as a young single man, uh, dating. He dated my mom for four years, uh, and it was long-distance uh, dating. Uh, my father had many uh, various jobs. He uh, sold watermelon. My dad lived, lived, grew up and lived in Virginia, and uh, he would go up to New York and get a truckload of watermelon and uh, bring them back, or vice versa. I forget what it was. Probably the other way around, sounds like. But he was on the road with truckloads of watermelon. And uh, he would call my mom and different, from different locations, and they, they, not only were they dating, but they, were, they had this long-distance relationship. And my father was still in single dating mode. And it took him, as many young men, a bit of a transition to re-identify his new place in life as husband, as husband. This was not just about what he did. It was embracing who he was. And so my mom tells this story. Oddly enough, it seems like she enjoys telling this story, that my dad was sitting in a bar and uh, not having a job. And it wasn't just that he wasn't having a job, not being at home. It wasn't just that he wasn't being at home. He wasn't living his new identity. His best friend comes in the bar and says, hey, uh, Charlie, what are you doing? Having a drink. Where's your wife? Don't know. What job do you have? Not sure. Since we're in church, I won't tell you the next string of phrases that the best friend said, which my mom enjoys telling that part of the story. It's kind of a family secret. Let's just say it was straight up. <laughs> Get your britches, I'm being nice, off this bar stool and become the husband that you signed up to be. In other words, and by the way, the other cool part of the story, which my mom loves to tell as well, he got a job. And he worked there for 40 years. And I was talking to Justin about his granddad today. He didn't miss a day of work. And he drove 100 miles round trip every day in the mountains of Virginia. And to earn a little extra money, he had five riders with him that he picked up from their house. And when it was snowing, as it often did in Virginia in the winter, Instead of leaving the house every morning at 5.45, he left at about 4.30 so that he could pick up his riders and shovel away from them from their house to get it to his car. That was a husband, you see. It wasn't just what he did. It was who he was. He hadn't yet to brace what it meant to be a husband. We feel this. If you've ever had a child, uh, you know, I think 
you know, women have the blessing and the curse of having children. You, you've got to, you know, put up with the pain and the labor and the caring of the child. But you also, women also seem to have it like a, a nine-month head start. You, you're, you're already, you know, internally connecting with the child psychologically, emotionally. So by the time child comes, you know, we're, we're, we're the guys over there eating a Snickers bar. You're like, hey, woo, smoke a cigar. <laughs> and for men, we have to grow into our identity as a father. This is why we screw it up a lot at the beginning, women. <laughs> And I remember having our first child and it just like I was trying to wrap my mind around I'm no longer just Steve, a husband. I'm Steve, a father, and it wrecked my world. I've got to do this. But it wasn't just that I had to change diapers. I had to become the father of this child. Do you see? Jesus didn't just come and says, this is what I got to do, but this is who I am. I am the sent one. This is why he said, the work of God is this, to believe in the, the sent one. I am the sent one. That's why when Jesus in John chapter 7, verse 16, he says this, my teaching is not my own. What I'm saying is not my own. I'm the sent one. It comes from him who sent me. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. He speaks on his own he who speaks on his own does so to gain honor for himself, but he who works for the honor of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There's nothing false about him. Now, here's what's fascinating. This is why it's, it is of great value to us to study the story according to the best friend of Jesus. There is, you could go on and Google, what are the uniquenesses of the Gospel of John and just have fun. Put your seatbelt on. Because John gives us a different story. And listen to this, watch. There are 21 chapters in the, in the story of John. Now, when John wrote it, he didn't say, now, chapter two, that came later. But we've divided it into to 21 chapters, okay? In the story of John, 38 times, that's nearly twice every chapter, 38 times Jesus is referred, he refers to himself as the sent one. It's as if John is saying, let me tell you who he thought, he, who he knew he was. John had every ability to say, I tell you, Jesus, he was kind of hothead behind the scenes. Jesus, boy, I tell you what, he was, he was kind of, you know, lame behind the scenes. See what John is saying, behind the scenes, behind the scenes of what we could see, Jesus understood that he was the sent one. That's who he was. So now when God comes to us and says, go, share, be, share the gospel, this is where it becomes very critical, and it's like the, an optical illusion. I know I'm perhaps playing with your mind a little bit, and it's subtle, but I, I hope that I can communicate to you how important the difference is. You see, if I am a if I am just doing things around the house because I'm 
because my wife has asked me to do them or it's, I see everybody else doing them, it will be done with a much more different motivation than if I say, hey, this is, I'm a father of this home and I want to live out that identity. Now there's a want to. There's a different energy than I have to because listen, for the things that you should do, there's a, there are times where I'm like, well, maybe I'm not going to do it today. I should go to the gym, but I, I, I'm not going to do it today. But if I say, hey, I'm a temple of the Holy Spirit. This is God's property. Then going to the gym becomes a bit easier. I, I, I am a temple of the Spirit, so I'm not going to put that in my mouth. I'm not going to drink that. I'm not going to eat that, whatever that might be, because, see, my motivation is, is based on who I am rather than what I should do or I shouldn't do. Make sense? I know it's like, uh, you got you to stretch your mind a little bit. But watch this. When God tells us to go, it's not because of something that we should do. It's rather who he, we are. Watch. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 18. The writer is Paul, and he's reviewing the good news. God reconciled us. That means broke the gap. We were off kilter. I've, I've made a way now, reconciled us to himself through Christ. And now he sent us, as he's done throughout all of history. He gave us now this ministry to tell others about reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. Now, over time, you'll hear me say, when you see the word therefore, you've got to ask why it's therefore in the Bible. And so when you look at the next sentence, it's everything. He's given us this message of reconciliation. We are, therefore, our identity now is Christ ambassador. In other words, don't just go and do something. Be something. Be Christ ambassador. This is your identity. And when you awaken into that, like, wow, I am that. I am that. Now I've got to, man, my actions will follow embracing the fact that you are, not that you do, you are Christ's ambassadors. Watch. As though God were making his appeal through you. Woo! That's amazing. That is amazing. And I do believe that for some people, we're all wired differently, are we not? For some people, they're like, got it. Some people, however, are more like me, like, okay, I want to become that. But the starting place is the same. In other words, got it, I want to be, you know, that's where I'm, I am. I'm going I'm, oh, I'm to, my actions are going to follow that. But some of us are like, okay, if that's who I am, then God help me grow into that. And both of those are equally beautiful. God is looking for those people that say, yeah, okay, I'm an ambassador. But God is also looking for people 
that would say, okay, if that's what I am, that's what I am going to become in you with your help. If you have children, you understand this. And I, of course, speak from a point of view as a parent because it's close to home. But it's very natural for when uh, kids are growing up that the responsibilities begin to increase. When we're, when we're infants, there's not a lot we can do around the house, right? Where everything is being done for you. Uh, so you can't, if you have an infant uh, and they're six months old, uh, you're not going to say, hey, make sure you clean that sippy cup up before after you finish. <laughs> and you spill the little ketchup there in the corner of the floor, actually there and there and there and there and there if you have a six-month-old. And uh, before you hit the sack tonight, I need you to clean that up, right? That's the value of growing up. <laughs> because even when they're four or five, make sure you... Take your plates and put them in the sink after dinner, right? See, I'm living in a glorious layer now where I can say, hey, um, empty the dishwasher, but take the, first, the old ones out, the dirty ones out, load the dishwasher, put the tablet in and run the whole thing. You know, as a parent, after you've done and 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 done, it's so nice to say, hey. And I just keep thinking, hey, you know, when do we reach the level of like, hey, you know, go, you know, pressure wash the roof. We're not. I tried it. It didn't go well. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't do it. But you, but as people grow up, their tasks, you would agree, get more complicated, more responsibility. And then everybody experiences the joy of that. But, listen, everybody knows, if you've had teenagers in the house, that it's very normal to have to have the conversation. And the conversation goes like this. Hey, I'm not just asking you to empty the dishwasher or take the trash out or pick up your stuff. I'm asking it because you're part of this family. It's who you are. And I'm trying to teach you in life that when you have a role, you have to live out that role, right? It's a lot different than saying, empty the trash. It's empty the trash because you're a part of our family and we're all carrying firewood or getting, foraging for vegetables, or emptying the trash, or emptying the dishwasher. It's that. And then you, you lay that out, and your teenagers get it so clearly. <laughs> and they understand, and then they ask you the next day, what can I do for you, for the tribe? <laughs> yeah, we're working on that. Yeah, we're still working on that. <laughs> Look. Look. I'm saying that because of this. Some people are like, got it, I'm an ambassador. But some people are like, okay, I understand, and I want to grow into that. But I want to say to you firmly and honestly, listen, real carefully, real carefully. The people in our human experience that you're doing everything for them, they're called babies. 
They're called babies. And Christ gives to us, he entrusts to us the most valuable thing in the planet. The message to the souls of our friends and family who do not yet know Christ, who are drowning in the same ocean of sin that we were, who can't help themselves any more than we can. And he says, I'm giving that to you. We're way beyond taking out the trash. And in order to achieve that with joy and passion and dedication and consistency, we must understand that God sees us, Christ sees us, the best friend of Christ. And let me tell you his heart, Christ sees you as, as, as if God is speaking through you. That's your identity. And man, it's hard to wrap your head around because we think just little old me. But Christ says, yes, little old you, who goes to speak to some other little old somebody who's not little old anybody to God. Does that make sense? Sometimes we look at the disciples, we're stunned by their behavior, and yet we find ourselves doing the same patterns. It's easy for us to lock ourselves inside and be comfortable. For many years here at our church, now for those of you new, I'm going to have a little family talk. For many years we said to ourselves, hey, let's stay within the four walls of our church and let's care for one another as we should because so often in the church culture, if you're not familiar with it, we're doing a lot on the outside. Meanwhile, somebody sitting right next to us is going through a divorce or a heartbreak or family crisis or anything of that nature. And so we're out doing so much that we skip over what we call row four. And so we wanted to get that as right as we could as human beings and say, hey, let's focus. We also have a passion for discipleship to grow people up, and so we've done that. But I'm reminded today that the Great Commission is a two-part design. And that two-part design is to go. That's the first part. And then care for and make disciples. And I find in the church culture, it just seems like the churches do one better than the other always. And they sometimes there's... Uh, many, many, many churches I know, you know, they're more evangelistically minded. They're more uh, open to sharing their faith. But then the discipleship part is a bit weak. I don't say that critically. I'm just saying that's observation. I think many pastors would say that. We've been the other way around, I think, where we've discipled and, and made that an emphasis. And then, but then this is an area that we could grow in and engage in. And it's all about growing as a family, like any other human family. It's all about growing. But as the leader and the pastor of this church, one of my deepest primary goals is to balance. That's not, that's not uh, you know, I've heard people say, oh, man, I like the way we're doing it. Why do we do it? We don't have a choice. God says go, and God says disciple. 
care for one another. And our tendency can be to, to enclose ourselves because I'm comfortable with you and you're with me because we know each other. And when we step out into the world, then it becomes dangerous, doesn't it? What will people think of us? So after the resurrection, there had already been some Jesus sightings. The disciples in John chapter 20 found themselves enclosed. And on the evening of the first day in John 20, verse 19, on the evening of that first day when the disciples were together with the doors locked because they were afraid. They were afraid. They were locked for the fear of the Jews because those are the ones that killed Christ. Uh, they were afraid of those Jews who killed Christ. Jesus came and stood among them. And he said, chill out. <laughs> Peace. Shalom. Take it easy. Take a deep breath. And they had some time together. John indicates in his last chapter, there's so much to write, it'd fill up the whole world. So they had some time after this. He showed them his hands and his side. It was a bodily resurrection. He wasn't like a ghost or anything. And the disciples, oh boy, I got to say it. They were jazzed <laughs> when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, peace, and then watch what happens. He transfers his identity. As the Father has sent me, now you're sent. Kind of like this. Tag. You're it. You're it. You are it. That means that God is making his appeal through us. You're it. There's not another plan. That's why God said, go. You're it. This is your identity. What's your identity? It. <laughs> Sent. That's who you are. Yesterday, I was thrilled. Uh, I'm going to go back to the very first picture uh, in, the, in the slides that showed up the church yesterday and there's a line out the door because uh, we had a training for those that were able to come and their schedule, and, but training for those that were like, man, I want to I wanna be sent. And so you can go to the next slide. We had a, a room packed full of people in our church that said, uh, I want to be sent. Now, the guy that did this was a young guy, raw and honest. He's built a, a church in Pennsylvania uh, whose founding members were those who were heroin addicts, prostitutes, um, and those that he went to live in the city with them. So he's, in my opinion, age makes no difference. He's got, he's got ground to, to, to teach us. And after our time together where this room was full of those who say, hey, I want to learn more about it. He said, hey, I want to share something with you. I didn't want to tell you before I came. Um, he said, I've done this training in many churches, and he said, um, I've never had more than 20 people show up. And he said, I didn't want to tell you that because I thought you might lose confidence. And <laughs> here I am. 
But he said, Steve, when you emailed me a few weeks ago and said, hey, we, we need to order workbooks, we have at least 140 signed up. He said, I literally fell on my chair. And I said, oh, yeah, that's, that's, that's our family. Hungry. Hungry for God. We're going we're gonna to close a little bit differently this morning. I'm going to ask Clay to come. And, and I want you to do just some soul searching as best you can on a Sunday morning. And maybe you do better soul searching in the privacy of your home. But um, maybe you're like me. Okay, I'm going to be super honest here. I have not embraced this identity of being sent enough. Let me put it another way. Had I embraced this identity of being sent more, then sharing Christ and interjecting Christ would have been more frequent. Okay? So, same thing as Jesus said, chill out. Everybody's, everybody, we're all broken before the cross, right? But when I hear these words and, and re-embrace, wow, God, I am, it's as if God is making his, his appeal through me, through you. I want to I awaken that in me and live like my dad had to learn to live like a husband, to live more like that. Um, I've got, we've got some tools that are coming. I'll share that later. Just kind of don't want to convolute this moment with that. But we'll never ask you to do anything that we don't do our best at equipping you with. So you may think, hey, how am I going to do this? We've got a mobile app, a new mobile app, other than Exchange, coming out with the tools, etc. So I, I really don't want to get into that today. Um, Here's what I'm going to ask you to do, and just be real. And if and this is not uh, something you respond to, please, this is who we are. Uh, we are we're honest. We're trying to be honest, as I've just been. But I'm wondering today, as I thought through God's message to us, and as this is a, a real pivotal moment in our church family, to be honest with you, to say, hey, let's begin to engage in that second part of the, of the Great Commission. Um, and kind of this, this time of reflection, uh, I'm wondering if there are those that would say, I'm going to embrace that identity today of being sent. And I don't, I'm not quite sure what that means or how I will accomplish it. God gives a promise, by the way, with the Great Commission, go into all the world and preach the gospel, go and make disciples of all nations, and I am with you to the end. So God's going to be with you. But in this moment of reflection, for those of you that would say, hey, God, before you right now, because in times in Scripture, there were times where someone said, I'm going to physically show you, God, that I'm going to take a step. I'm going to step, God. And so we're going to pray here in just a little bit. But before we do, I'm wondering if there are those in the room that would say, you know, today I'm going to embrace that that identity of being sent. And I'm going to stand to my feet uh, to picture to God that I'm stepping into this identity. And I would even invite you, we kind of cleared some more chairs out to come up here and before God, and we're not going to sing a song or anything, and to say, God, I'm stepping into that identity.
and then we're going to pray together. Okay? So I won't drag it out. But for those, and, if, and again, if you don't, this is not your moment, please don't feel pressure to come. But if you're just saying, God, I, I sense you. And if you would, if you're coming first, if you'll go ahead and go to the front over here, and that way people can get around you. And that's great. Anywhere around here. And if you want to come up here, that's cool. And if you want to kneel, that's cool. Whatever. God calls you to do. Um, and uh, if there's not enough room, I think there will be, but you can stand in the aisle. And we're, we're saying uh, to God, this is, God, I, I am an ambassador for Christ today. I'm an ambassador for Christ. And I am, I really want God to, to live in, in that identity and Father, we are grateful, God, today uh, to hear your call and the privilege of that call, the privilege, Father, of being counted as an ambassador of Christ. There was no, no uh, doubt that Christ embraced the identity of being sent, and it wasn't that something that he had to do was who he was. And so, Father, in, our, in the weakness of who we are, God, we simply offer ourselves to say, yes, we are here. When you ask Isaiah, who will go? Who will I send? And he said, send me. God, today we just, we say to you, God, not only send me, but let me live sent. Let me be sent. And God, in all the conversa in the conversations, in the friends and the family that I have, God, I want to live sent. To be in tune with one ear to heaven and one ear to the, the heart of my friend or my family, willing God to engage, willing to vocalize, willing God to deepen, Lord, my identity is being sent. Father, we, we're grateful for who you call us to be in today, God, we end this day by saying yes. Yes. Thank you for Jesus today. Thank you, God, for those who, in this room, who are looking and just pray they'll find you today. And uh, God, thank you for the Spirit of God and thank you, God, for promising to be with us as we live sent. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.